0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: I remember the first time going there really vividly because as you come into the island on the ferry, you start to go from kind of more open ocean and then everything starts to calm down and you see these pockets of this beautiful blue and green kind of in the distance on the horizon and that's the islands and the reefs. You just swim off the beach and put your head under the water and it's it's the craziest thing because suddenly all this life is there that until you look under the water you you don't really see and you see the beautiful aquamarine and it's gorgeous colours and it's really inviting but you don't know what's going on just underneath the surface and even in the shallowest amount of water, even just a metre under the surface. Suddenly, it's like finding a city that you didn't know was there. There's so much colour and all these different kind of fish and sharks and rays and turtles and baby turtles and these beautiful big coral structures which kind of make up that city seascape. And it just, like, it just blew my mind. I always wonder why people are fascinated by space when it's just so much easier to find this completely different world to what we live in by just swimming under the water.
0: Hello and welcome to the underwater world of Off Track. I'm Dr Anne Jones. This week we're at the Great Barrier Reef and it's an exciting week because... I'm actually up near Townsville in North Queensland, preparing for something that has never been attempted before. On ABC TV, on Friday, December the 4th, we are going to try to live broadcast the coral spawning. I'll put some more info about it on the Off Track website, but make a note in your diary. But for right now, here's Off Track producer Joe Kahn diving into what really makes a coral reef a coral reef.
2: What do you think of when you think of a reef? For me, it's this conglomerate of different shapes and colours and textures all interlocking like an intricate jigsaw puzzle. And it's pulsating with life, but everything's moving on its own time scale. There's huge boulder-like corals laying down calcium carbonate over hundreds of years. And then there's a tiny coral goby that has just eight weeks of lifespan. And a reef draws in the travellers from the open ocean. Sharks, dolphins, manta rays, and it draws us in too. But what about if a reef is sick? What is it like then? Dr. Tracy Ainsworth is a marine scientist from the University of New South Wales. She does a lot of work on Heron Island in Queensland, and she has watched as the reef there has bleached before her eyes the first thing you can tell actually
1: is the smell. The reef starts to smell bad as... We describe it as that you can see them starting to sweat and it's the corals starting to produce a lot of mucus. And as they're stressed, they're pumping mucus out, trying to clear themselves and remove waste carbon and and all the things that are going on as it's getting too hot. All these mucus strands start coming off the corals and it's got a really, really distinct smell. So it's always, for me, one of the first things I notice coming into bleaching as you can tell that the reef is starting to to smell not right. Then after that, particularly in the shallow water, you start to see the colour go and everything starts going going white and that can happen really, really quickly.
2: While it's often referred to as coral bleaching, nothing in the environment is ever affected in isolation.
1: So once you get that bit closer to a coral or or even just a little kind of patch of branching corals, what's really interesting for people, I think, to do who are at at a reef for a period of time is to go back to that same bomi day after day and they'll see that there's fish that live with that coral they live right there they're there every day they defend it they look after the algae that's around there and they're they're algal farmers and you know that's their home and after you see the fish you then see there's other things that live there and they don't move much they don't go to another bomi because there's other things living there so things like moray eels you know that's their patch of reef So these corals on a small scale are home to a huge diversity of vertebrates and also invertebrates, which they're entirely reliant on that coral structure being there. Different corals are affected in different ways, some are more susceptible to bleaching and it's because of how they grow, so things that are really good at capturing light And if you think about plants, you know, how the branch structures are, how open they are, or there's different plants that you can tell they're really good at capturing light. And corals are the same because they rely on light for food. So big plates, for example, where all the little branches are facing upwards, they're really good at capturing light. And when the light hits them because they're calcium carbonate, it actually bounces around the skeleton. So they're they're grown to harvest light for food. But if you're in the heat and the sunlight, the branching and the plating ones that bounce light around, they're the ones that are going to bleach first. Whereas some of the more mounding and rock-like structures where the tissue is really deep into the calcium carbonate, they're much more tolerant of the bleaching conditions. So you will see variation on a reef with some corals that'll start to bleach first and they'll bleach much quicker and then they also start to die much quicker.
2: And then what's the flow-on effect on those other animals that rely on it for shelter and food and things?
1: So once the coral bleaches and starts to die, it starts to then get colonised by algae really, really quickly. It gets overgrown. What was a coral is no longer really recognisable as a coral. The calcium carbonate, the skeleton, it starts to erode and break away. The coral starts to break really easily. And then that home that it provides is lost as well. So those invertebrates that live in the coral, they'll also be affected by the hot water, but then they're also affected by the loss of the home and the same for fish around as well if those fish are territorial and live within that area that three-dimensional structure that's provided shelter and their home is then lost so that changes how the reef operates. You go from this vibrant colourful busy city to kind of a wasteland where it's completely changed to an, an algal covered system it's become really quiet and and some of those most recognisable corals, the plating ones and the, the branching ones, have been lost. So it, it very quickly becomes a different
2: place. The city analogy is just like right on point, isn't it? It's like a crumbling city that no one's taking care of anymore and everyone's abandoned it. It's like apocalyptic almost.
1: It does feel that way when you see bleaching happening corals can recover and reefs can recover but how like how severe that degradation has been during the the summer bleaching event you know it's how quickly like you say that city that's been abandoned can get repopulated and cleaned up and and all the algae taken away and and the busyness to come back to that city.
2: In this city, the coral formations are like houses or offices or apartment buildings. And if you zoom in closer, you start to see the members of the community that live there. But these individual corals are perhaps not what you might expect.
1: One we work on, which is called Acropora aspera, and it's this beautiful big coral that grows in this big patch of these fingers or branches that are all growing together and they're kind of intertwined and, and then they grow into this big patch colony, which can be thousands of individual polyps got two different colour varieties it grows in one is this beautiful vibrant blue that almost tinges into purple and then the other one is just boring brown but they're both beautiful
2: beautiful but confusing which bit is the animal is it the branches or the knobbly bits or the fingers or the whole thing The pollocks
1: themselves are the animal, but they're all connected together. So the comparison would be like a whole room full of people holding hands and working together as one. There's still individual units, but they're connected to each other and they share resources. They share food across the individual polyps and across the colony. They work together to defend their space and to fight off things that are growing too close to them. But individually, each one is an animal. It has its own gut. It has its own tentacles. And if you were to break it off or a small piece of it off and put it somewhere else, it will grow into a new colony. And when a larvae settles on a reef, it forms one polyp. And then that polyp divides, and that's
2: how the colony grows. Is there a, a limit to how big a colony can grow? beside the space it's in one of the biggest corals that's been described is um the big mama it's a
1: massive single colony it's been around for hundreds of years a couple of stories high coral colony and then you have other corals other species that might not grow bigger
2: than your hand or your fist so the big mama which is like really creative name um (laughs) (laughs) that would have like thousands or millions of polyps millions. millions millions of millions yeah That's it, yeah. That's crazy to think that, um, you know, there's this huge coral and it's kind of described as a big coral. A coral. But actually (laughs) there are millions of animals on that. It's pretty cool.
1: Yeah, exactly. And, um, And those individual polyps are probably about the same size as the individual polyps on the smaller colony, you know, the one that you can hold in your hand. But, yeah, the colony is just scales different.
2: In this undersea city... On the huge coral colonies and the tiny single polyp corals, the polyps are the people. And they don't just work with each other, they work with other reef animals too. Coral
1: colonies have little crabs that live on that colony or on that branch. They won't go away from those little couple of branches that they live on. So maybe about the size of your hand that's the area that they'd move around and they'd move around all those branches which are like your fingers and what they do there is they keep the coral clean they eat some of that mucus that's coming off they eat the algae that tries to grow on them and they don't live anywhere else because they get eaten but in amongst the branches they're nicely protected you'll see that there's all these fish that hide in amongst the branches as well. It it provides a really safe home, protection
2: from predation. What's inside a coral?
1: If you were to break off one of those fingers and look inside, what you can see is the centre is really, really white and then the outside is really dark, the colour of the coral, and you can see those individual polyps that sit inside the calcium carbonate skeleton and they, they sit all the way around the edge. And if you were to break that coral finger off during spawning time, you'd actually see big bundles of pink or orange, which is the egg and sperm bundles within each of those individual polyps. It's dark or colourful because it's got symbiotic algae, which are these single-celled algae, the greeny-brown colour. And for one coral cell, it will have one algal cell within it. And that's what makes them the really dark browns and greens that you see on the reef. And then the pinks and the blues and those brighter colours that you see, they're actually the colour of the, the coral tissue itself.
2: If you've ever seen a photo of coral bleaching, often the corals that have been bleached completely white are interspersed with some pinky, purpley, blue corals that are spectacularly colourful and bright. But in fact, this fluorescence is a result of the coral being under stress and its symbiotic algae leaving, which exposes the normal colour of the coral tissue, highlighted by the white skeleton beneath. And then when the coral does start to die, the colour will completely disappear. This is Off Track. I'm Jo Kahn, bringing you the reef while Anne is busy at the reef. And marine scientist Dr Tracy Ainsworth is guiding us through a coral reef city with its bomby buildings and coral houses and polyp people. But we can zoom in even further to where most of Tracy's research is now focused. Inside a coral polyp is a multitude of microscopic organisms.
1: Just like us, there's bacteria... Um, that live in and on the coral the same way we have bacteria on us and it does exactly the same thing. So they have bacteria in the gut and it's there for the the same reason because they're, they're feeding and there's nutrients in the gut and, and the stuff they're feeding on needs bacteria to break it down and make those nutrients available to the animal. They also have bacteria in the mucus which helps to defend the skin the tissue of the coral from bacteria that might come in and infect or cause an infection the same way we have bacteria on our skin our normal what's called the microbiome um, and every animal has it and and so do corals.
2: A microbiome is literally a community biome of tiny organisms micro. In any particular environment and it could be your armpit or your gut or a coral there are all sorts of microbes like bacteria, fungi and viruses that all interact with each other and the environment they're in. But when it comes to corals, microbiome research is still in its infancy compared to both human microbiome studies and other areas of marine science. At least 20
1: years ago, the concept of coral as, it's called a holobiont or or a meta-organism was proposed And that was really from learning about the microbiome in in people and other systems that once that became better understood, people were able to realise that, oh, this probably still does also apply to corals. And then they went and had a look and started to look at all the different kinds of bacteria that were there and found, well, actually, yep, this this really complicated microbial community is actually theirs.
2: I like the idea of a meta-organism yeah can you elaborate on that a little bit
1: the concept of a meta-organism is it's really about thinking of not just the individual animal whether it's a coral or, or human or, or whatever um, instead of just thinking about the the bound of that organism being itself to thinking of those boundaries as a little further out and including the things that live on the animal that contribute to how well the animal lives. So same as we're a meta-organism with the bacteria in our gut, if we think about a coral that way and, and extend those bounds outside just the coral, you suddenly see that it's this really complicated Environment. It has algae living within its cells, and it needs that algae for food. It has bacteria living on its surface, and it needs that bacteria to survive. And so that kind of extension beyond itself becomes the, the meta-organism.
2: The coral meta-organism. The colony, polyps, algae, bacteria, viruses, crabs, fish, all one unit. I feel like calling it a well-oiled machine doesn't really do justice to the millions of species interactions that are happening to maintain a thriving coral city. But despite the enviable teamwork taking place, corals and their counterparts still exist in a fine balance, which is being disturbed more and more often. In 2016 and 2017, the Great Barrier Reef experienced back-to-back mass bleaching events due to record high ocean temperatures. Scientists estimated that after those two bleaching events, combined with several other smaller events in the last couple of decades, the Great Barrier Reef has lost more than 50% of its corals since 1995. And of course, it's not just the Great Barrier Reef. Reefs throughout the Asia-Pacific, the Red Sea and the Caribbean have also experienced severe bleaching in recent years due to climate change. Now scientists like Tracy and many others worldwide are looking at the coral microbiome as part of the way that we could help reefs survive.
1: What we're trying to understand here with coral bleaching and the microbiome is really what meta-organism structure is the one that tips the balance towards survival. We're just really starting to understand what's happening to the microbiome during bleaching. It doesn't necessarily have anything to do with how bleaching progresses, but whether corals can maintain a microbiome that helps them resist pathogens or disease-causing organisms is probably really important in how well they survive or resist being colonised as they're bleaching. But it's really, really complicated because you've got this reef environment where there's this huge diversity of bacteria, a bit like our communities within a town. We have we all have our own unique microbiome, but we also have microbes that are similar between different people. So with, it's the same with corals. We have to try to Describe what all those different bacteria are and then how they might be different between one particular colony and another colony. For example, ones that are really small and ones that are really big. Um, find out which bacteria are are always there or always doing the, the good things. Which bacteria are, are the bad bacteria and maybe part of um, disease or, or colonisation and then start to tease apart how does that change during something like bleaching and does it help some corals be more resistant than others? Now we're seeing annual bleaching events and corals constantly being exposed to these temperatures that cause you know the biology to go haywire so what we're really trying to understand is for which ones that survive what have been the factors that influence survival and can we then predict how those interactions have come about and if you know those interactions are things that we can manipulate or if those interactions are things that we can we can protect in any way so it may be that we can't do a lot about bleaching as it's happening on the reef but Maybe there's other things that we can do to help push that balance to survival so the corals have a chance to survive and recover and the reef is, is still there, even though it's undergone a bleaching event.
2: It really is a race against the clock now. And even if and when we're able to limit warming, scientists are preparing to deal with regular mass bleaching for the foreseeable future. And it's not only devastating for the reef's future and its ability to recover, but bearing witness again and again to such extreme environmental collapse takes a huge personal toll too.
1: I've been working on bleaching now for a bit under 20 years, and around 2013, 2014, it was still an abstract. If you'd asked me 5 years ago if I would be experiencing <laughs> near annual bleaching events, I would have said no, no, no. That that wouldn't be until 2030 maybe. I never really believed that it would be this soon even though the data and the predictions have all said, you know, by 2020 we'd be seeing near annual bleaching events. I think for people working coral reef science, you see that, but you still want to, you know, you're still optimistic. These are places that you love, and you hope that that's not the case. But really quickly, it's it's become evident that we are actually now 2020 experiencing near annual bleaching events, and that's really that's really confronting. When we were on Heron this year in 2020, people were coming back from their snorkels saying that. They felt so hot in the water, they were nearly having panic attacks because the water was, was so hot around the reef. So people as well were noticing how warm that water was getting from mid-February onwards and then seeing bleaching start to impact the shallow waters and then some of the areas that weren't so protected. It's really horrible to see it, um, because the water is it is so warm being in the water. And then you're swimming through the mucus that's coming off the corals and you're seeing it go white and you're smelling it. It's this, it's it's like you're part of what's happening on the
0: reef as well. Dr. Tracy Ainsworth talking with off-track producer Joe Kahn. You can go deeper into the coral research done by Tracy and her team in their podcast called Deep Blue on My Doorstep. The links on the off-track website. And don't forget to tune into ABC TV on Friday the 4th of December at 8.30 to witness the first live broadcast of coral spawning. And as well as the spawning, you can see the reef come alive in a breeding bonanza with fish and birds and turtles. I can't wait. But as always, meet me right here at the same time next time with your wetsuit, because we'll be diving somewhere else.
1: I love when you're swimming back up to kind of break through that barrier again and you see the water surface from the underside and the light kind of passing through and it really does feel like you're going back into another world when you, when you swim back up and, and, and go back into our kind of scale of the world.